are we expecting them to come in with these skills already? Just because we know that students are getting those skills right now in K-12? There's a lot of assumptions being made about mm -hmm. what you should know by the time you start higher ed. Mm -hmm. So are you asking essentially, is there a benchmark or should there be a benchmark? And if you're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. In season three, episode one, the podcast team discussed the new media consortium 2018 Horizon Report. One of the challenges touched on from the report was improving digital literacy. And as Aaron stated in that episode, digital literacy is a complex topic because not everybody has equal access to technology. There are some fundamental barriers to accessing technology, not only age, but even geography as well. This is one example of several issues affecting the promotion of digital literacy in higher education. Another challenge revolves around conversations about transitioning technologies from ineffective distractions to meaningful, effective learning tools. As an instructional designer, there are times in these conversations that I stop and wonder, what are the basic skills? Do our students have the fundamental skills necessary to start their years in higher education successfully? By the day, we are inundated with new technologies and tools, leaving us eager to implement, integrate, and innovate. But at what cost? Are students getting left behind who are still trying to catch up? Where did we begin our own digital literacy journey and using what skills? Are those skills still necessary or do we just keep moving forward and hope that everyone will catch up? The American Library Association's Digital Literacy Task Force defines digital literacy as the ability to use information and communication technologies to find, evaluate, create, and communicate information, requiring both cognitive and technical skills. Today, we will dig a little deeper into the topic of digital literacy by taking a look at the challenges students face, reflecting on our own digital literacy path, and talking about what it means for today's student. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Celia Kachwaitiwa from the Academic Innovation Team at ASU's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are Jeanette Senegal. Aaron Kraft. Okay, let's get started. So my first question to you as we talk about digital literacy is if someone were to ask you, what is digital literacy? What would you say? And what skills do you feel fall under this? The definition that you quoted earlier is the straightforward fundamental definition of, of digital literacy. So I would agree that it's uh, basically how to use technology adeptly and appropriately to locate information, right? And just to say it you know, very uh, casually, to get things done using technology. But I think if it, I see it as a Venn diagram, and I, I find that digital literacy uh, falls on the overlap where, uh, between how to use technology but also how to be a digital citizen. And then both of those are underpinned by having access to technology in the first place. So I, I might widen the scope a little bit from, from the definition you quoted in the monologue. 
I'm glad you brought the words digital citizenship to the front, Erin, because that was immediately when we started talking about this topic as a perspective episode, thinking that's that's exactly where my mind went initially and thinking through um, what standards are available through the International Society for Technology in Education, because they do have standards for both learners or students and educators or education leaders. And the core standards for students as they stand today in 2019 include being an empowered learner, being a digital citizen, a knowledge constructor, an innovative designer, a computational thinker, a creative communicator, and a global collaborator, which to me all have a connection to or relate as an aspect to digital literacy. When I thought about the actual words at first, though, I was like, does that mean we're asking whether or not people know how to click on things or tap things or open apps? Is that is that concept about doing something? And it took me immediately back in my head to this, you know, very strange moment I had as a teenager when my very smart, very educated grandmother wanted to get a computer for the first time. And she knew that her cousins had been doing email and this was really exciting. And I'm like, I can teach you how to do that. So she bought a computer, brought it into the house and I was ready to go. I'm like, I'm going to make you a handout. This is going to be a lot of fun. And she could not use the mouse, could not figure out that concept of motion translating to an action on a screen. And I was completely stumped. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually happened to me a couple of times. I've been asked to demonstrate technology for a particular audience. And both times that I'm thinking of once was to show how to use Audacity. It's a free audio editing software. And another time, well, actually, both times were Audacity, now that I think about it. One was to an older audience, but we were all taking an online course, so I assumed they understood technology to a certain degree. The other was to a freshman-level college course, and I had, for both instances, prepared uh, what I thought was a rather ingenious lesson plan. I was going to give them audio files and we we're going to chop them up together and rearrange them and put them back together. And you, you learn how to use Audacity and how to manipulate a sound file. And in both instances, over half of the uh, audience couldn't even open the sound file. Some of them couldn't even download it from their email onto their computer and then open it up through uh, Audacity. And both times I was completely stumped. (laughs) And for me, it was a humbling experience. Like, I I really need to take a step back and and let's start at the very beginning. I jumped ahead. And if you're you're a a technology freak or, you know, like me, or if you just, if you're savvy with it, uh, as I imagine you were, Jeanette, you don't even think about those first steps. You you just dive right in to how to type the email. But... (laughs) <laughs> what about the mouse? That's right. Kind of like you, Erin, I had, I used to teach uh, workshops, digital storytelling workshops for educators who taught in lower income schools. And we would have about 10 to 12 um, come in for a summer program. And we taught them the basics of digital storytelling um, and their big project for the end was that they would create, go out and shoot video and then edit it. And they would use tools like uh, Adobe Premiere or um, I, I'm sorry, not Adobe Premiere, Movie Maker and iMovie because those were free tools. 
We wanted, we tried to make sure that everything was free um, so that they could take it back to their classrooms. But in, you know, learning how to teach someone to edit, I had years of experience in video editing and video shooting, but to take, take a conscious effort to kind of pull back and learn how to scaffold the teaching so that I was making sure to hit some of those novice educators who were coming in and didn't have a lot of background in just even really using the computer. They weren't completely comfortable to ones who knew kind of what they were doing and they were ready to go. Um, Mm -hmm. It was it was interesting to see some of their where they would get frustrated. It was it was educate the educators. You're you're training Mm -hmm. educators and they had some of them had a low level of digital literacy, you might say. Yes. And watching the frustration with that, because I think so much of the time educators are used to being the um, the ones who know. And then they have to take a step back and think, "Okay, wait, I'm the learner now. And then, you know, being the um, facilitator and trying to make sure that you're being conscious of where you need to start because you're working with adults at this point and you're not with the students. So you have to still think, "Okay, but they are students there. They are adults, but that doesn't mean they have the um, necessary skills to come in and just start doing this. So you're starting, you kind of have to pull back and start from those lower skills again. That's a really good point that we kind of, we have sometimes this just operational idea of what a foundational skill set might be. And as we're going along trying to accomplish a goal or meet an objective, sometimes we lose track of the fact that 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 model we have might not quite be accurate, or we need to go back and get more information to figure out what state our learners are in before they ever walk through the door, whether they're kids, whether they're educators, adults, whatever. Um, But understanding where they're starting from is an important part of that process. Yeah, for sure. And it's uh, in our, what's the word I'm looking for here? Like in the Bible of instructional design, the very first thing you do is the learner analysis, right? Well, who is your learner and what do they know? And that can be tricky in a sense because how how do you reach out? You know, if I'm I was asked to do these projects within a class, for example, do I have the instructor's permission to put together a survey to send out to the students? And are they even going to take the time to fill it out? Mm-hmm. So maybe I wasn't being the best instructional designer. I did assume some things, and I got half of it right, and I got half of it wrong, apparently. But. But we learn from those experiences. I mean, I think yes. that's kind of an important part of our own self-development skill, you know, development over time right. is to learn from those. Yeah. Well, and um, thinking about self-development, how did you yourself move from literacy to fluency? It's great. You know, I studied Japanese for years and I, I lived in Japan and I passed one of the proficiency tests. So I spent probably about seven years just dedicating 80% of my free time to studying this language and, and trying to really master it. So I've noticed that there were different definitions of fluency, right? Does fluency mean I can go to the grocery store and ask where, where are the bananas? Or I can uh, go buy a ticket at the, the, the train station so I can get to where I'm trying to go. That's a very fundamental level, but it, it keeps you alive. It, it gets you from point A to point B successfully. Or some people describe uh, fluency as the ability to talk about 
anything and everything at any given moment. Can you talk about politics in Japanese? Oh, no, I could never do that. Even after seven years, like that's still, that's like the next step. That would have been the next step for me. Is that fluency or is just being able to go to the grocery store and get the food you need fluency? That's a really good example. I love that. And I think this is a challenging question to answer. It's difficult to nail down, like at what point on March 3rd, 2012, <laughs> Like, I got a great score on some sort of, you know, self-rating survey. It, it is a difficult question to answer. But I think for me, it's also the understanding that maybe I don't ever feel fluent, truly, in that, like, mm -hmm. I'm peak capacity. I'm always somewhat of a learner. I feel like I'm continually adding knowledge to this pool just because the environment that we work in, the nature of learning, human learning and cognition there's a lot that is continually emerging in the evidence. So for me, it's oh. not a set point. It's a continual reevaluation of what those standards are like. No, that's a good point. Technology is always expanding and changing anyway. So you have to keep learning. You have to keep that open mind. Mm -hmm. Though I can actually pinpoint when it clicked for me. Yeah? Yeah. So I was always into computers and technology. I think that you, have, you either have or you don't. Some people could not care less about technology. They only use it when they're forced to. And I actually have a lot of respect for that because I feel like sometimes technology is running my life instead of yeah. the other way around, right? So mm -hmm. there's no judgment there whatsoever. But I had, a, I had a love for computers. I've always played computer games, video games. And, and then uh, throughout college, I, I took my parents' old computer that they were going to throw away and I, I repurposed it. And, you know, so I was always into it. But it was when I was in, I was, I was working abroad and I was involved in several musical projects. So before I became an instructional designer, I was actually a musician. So I, I purchased this, I finally got a real job and I got some real money and I went and purchased a real computer, a, a 2011 iMac. <laughs> I was so proud of that thing. It was the base model too, it wasn't even the nice one, it was the base model. And I bought some real software to, for mixing, right? Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, Apple's Logic for anybody who might know. And that is the most convoluted, complex interface I had ever seen in my life. I have, there's so many buttons and layers and submenus, and it took me probably six to eight months of plugging away at it every day. And it was out of love. Like I wanted to learn it. And I was, and then after about uh, that time had passed, I realized that suddenly it was all coming to me very naturally. And then I had, uh, the verification came when I got a job working with hujong.com, H-U-J-I-N-G. They're a Chinese website, and they mix e-commerce with social media, with uh, language learning. And they, I was working at their offices in Shanghai, and they, they took me to a room. They said, we want you to record yourself using our software. But guess what? The software was in Chinese. <laughs> now, I could read a little bit having studied Japanese, but I... <laughs> You know, it was, it's still a much different language. So I basically had to take what I learned using my software at home, which was in English, and transferring that knowledge, that skill set over into this new environment. And I did it. And nobody knew I couldn't read the, the Chinese menu. Wow. Uh, and and I, at that point, I realized, wow, I, I do have a handle on this. See, and I would say that that, to me, is fluency, the ability mm -hmm. to transfer the information, the knowledge. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, growing up, so when you talk to a lot of people who, who think back to their years in grade school and you talk about computer systems and so much, 
so many times the stories are, do you remember playing Oregon Trail? Do you remember <laughs> playing Number Munchers? Do you remember playing, you know, these games? Number Munchers, <laughs> yeah. Frogger. Frogger, yes. Mm. And so, um, and, and I have to stop and think back, wait, I did not only do that, but I also have like some actual um, stories that I typed out that were around that time. So I guess there was some other learning of, you know, computer skills, basic computer skills, typing, that type of thing. But the things that stick out to me are the games and, <laughs> you know, how you had to learn how to be able to move from games to other um, softwares on the computer. And it wasn't anything like it is today with the amount of software and capabilities that computers have. But then I think, okay, so I did start that in school. Um, I remember my dad bringing home a laptop for work and he had um, Shanghai and what was the other card games? Oh, yeah. Mahjong. Ma oh, no. Um, was, was it called, was called Shanghai? Shanghai. Yeah, yeah. But it, uh -huh. it was Mahjong. It was the title. I, I had to learn later on that it was Mahjong uh -huh. and not Shanghai, but the name of the game was Shanghai. Right. But I remember him being really worried about us breaking this, you know, laptop by playing games on it. So <laughs> we would get in trouble if he caught us playing games. <laughs> oh, the um, temptation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had, you know, a little bit of access at home, but for the most part, the access was, you know, at school, whatever they were teaching us. And then I remember taking a business class. So I had to learn how to type, you know, with fluency and speed in high school and then uh, continued on from there. But it leaves me to wonder, you know, what about these students who might not be coming in with a lot of computer skills to higher ed? Because I know my own path, but I know that there are plenty of students who didn't come from a path like that. And coming from K-12, I know that I was the teacher who built a mini lab in my classroom, but only because I was so into educational technology and making sure that my students, you know, knew how to use the computer. And that mini lab was made of computers that other teachers weren't using in their classrooms. So I know for sure, you know, where I'm, I taught at, not all the students started with compute, basic computer skills in the classroom. And that leads me to um, asking you all, what are the skills needed that you feel are needed to be successful coming into higher education? And has that changed from the time that you were in undergrad? Yeah, well, it, it's definitely changed. I, I will go back to my Venn diagram. So you have digital literacy, like how to use technology appropriately and adeptly. And then the other side, uh, the digital citizenship. I'll break that down a little bit. I think in terms of digital literacy, okay, knowing how to use the mouse, right? Knowing how to download a file and open it, right? Those are uh, fundamentals. But I think there are other issues that students in particular really need to pay attention to. Things like plagiarism. Just because you copy and paste, that, that's no different than handwriting somebody else's work as well, right? It's not different because it's in a digital format. Uh, issues of piracy. Um, intellectual property, copyright in general. Um, and, and that's getting into the weeds, admittedly. But if you're a student, and you're serious about studying, you do not want to get slapped with a plagiarism charge. A majority of our classes are either online or have an online component through which you will submit your assignments, for example. Uh, I think it's something that uh, needs to be uh, given attention to. Knowing how to collaborate online. 
you know, hang out with your uh, classmates on, 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 I guess Google Hangouts is going away, so whatever the <laughs> next one's gonna be, whatever the next iteration is, but uh, you know, these collaboration tools like Skype, for example, how to uh, not only use those, but um, use those to an effect, to a positive effect, to build something as a community. Uh, critical analysis, how do you spot fake news? What does an article, quote unquote, fake news article look like? Uh, and that leads into finding reliable sources. Are you able to find articles uh, that your library might have, for example, that you need for your research paper? Uh, so finding reliable sources, which uh, pro tip, you generally can't go wrong with things that end in .edu, .gov, .org. And uh, the other extensions probably need a little more critical eye. Um, how to create a bibliography, a works cited page. Um, oh yeah, if phishing, filtering out spam, and how to properly use a public computer. If you're like me, I didn't have a computer for my first couple of years in college. I had to go to the uh, computer lab, and I, you know, you have to make sure you sign out after you're done using it, and make sure you log out of all your browsers and things like that, right? So how many people, how many students coming in know about that? Know about the dangers of not doing that? So. I would say that for sure for digital literacy. And then digital citizenship, just to be brief, is just basically knowing how to be uh, a good citizen online. I know when I first started, like in the late 90s, playing on the internet, uh, I was a goofball that didn't take any of it seriously because to me it wasn't real. It was just text to people that didn't exist. So I, I could say and do anything. Right. So I, I think there's a balance to be achieved between those two. Well, and those ISTE standards definitely address those those specific points. Things like uh, legal, ethical use of materials, understanding what a digital identity or footprint means, how to manage or self-manage your own um, public-facing online uh, interactions over mm -hmm. time. I'll say this question took me in a slightly different direction. It made me think a little bit about um, what we call 21st century teaching and learning, where we're moving away from technical skills to knowledge information skills, which I think were digital citizenship is definitely a good exemplar. Mm. But there's quite a bit of research around this whole concept of 21st century learning. And I was reading an article recently by Mishra and Maida, and they did a survey and they were looking at what are some educator perceptions around 21st century teaching and learning. And one of the frameworks that they use to anchor their work was a model called a three by three model. And we'll put reference information in the show notes. But in a nutshell, they kind of divide up this idea of 21st century learning into three main categories, what they call foundational knowledge, which means knowing things versus um, meta knowledge, knowing how to act. So creativity and innovation, problem solving, critical thinking, what do we do with all the information that's out there? And then hum what they call humanistic knowledge, which means valuing. So if we're back to legal and ethical use of others' property, mm. things like that, cultural competence, um, emotional awareness, what do you need to do to be competent in a job? So we're, we're moving well outside the boundary of, can I click on a word processing software and get the end result that I need? And moving into something that's really more about how do you live in the world that we are in today and get learners from point A to point B? And I don't know, you know, as a parent, so my daughter's in middle school, I don't know that this is specifically just her school, if you will, but her level of awareness and savvy constantly amazes me. 
every day she's talking to me about things that I find to be very nuanced. She's explaining the difference between um, posting written work to her blog on her school education site versus writing a formal essay. When I was that age, could I in any way describe the qualitative differences? I seriously doubt it. Seriously doubt it. So what things were are we changing. doing at that age? Yeah, things <laughs> are changing. <laughs> Playing Mario Brothers, using rainbow pens to yeah. write tiny little right. notes. Yeah. I don't, I don't Folding know. Our paper it was a long time ago. Yeah, really cool notes. Bet she can't do that. Oh, I don't know. I'm sure she could find a YouTube video to instruct her yeah. to do it. So you you talked about the 21st century skills, and in my experience, and here in Arizona at least. I didn't see a serious, a really serious thought on computer literacy until we adopted the park exam, which meant that we had to bring in and make sure that every district had computers available for computer-based testing. And I think, and I won't say that, you know, every every single um, school or place didn't think about computer literacy. Of course, there were computers in the classroom prior to that. But the idea of ensuring that students were building these skills and it was becoming part of the mainstream standards of education or being integrated and embedded in those standards meant that we had to make sure that these students could now transfer the ability to write an essay on a paper for an exam to typing out their paper in the computer-based system, um, exam system. And then the same thing with math skills and, um, you know, being able to answer questions because at that time, and this was probably about 2013, I think, 20, 2012, 2013, they a lot of schools had to start making sure that they had a true computer lab or computer classes to make sure that these students were ready for this exam. Because although we might have had access to them in the, the um, schools, it didn't mean that there was a priority put on them. I mean, it was kind of like a just another special area. Students would go, you know, spend an hour in the computer lab, learn what they learn and then go out kind of like um, we do with music and art and P.E., but once we got this computer-based state testing system, then it became a really big focal point of every student needs to be sure that they are mastering these 21st century skills like critical thinking and um, creativity. Yeah, and It became very real. At yes, that point. exactly. Yeah, and those ISTE standards really started to, you know, come to the form, forefront. Instead of being compartmentalized, like you're going to go to this room for this, you know, many minutes and study exactly. this one thing. All of a sudden now using that computer is integrated into mm -hmm. the daily routine, you know, so yeah, it changes the game right there. Well, and then I also think about school resources. So, um, you know, my children at the time were in, let's see, I think sixth grade and second grade when I moved them to a new school district that had a lot more resources. They went from having to write out all of their papers to having to turn in their papers through like email or type make, making sure that they were typed out in Google. And this was a huge learning curve, especially for the older one who came from, you know, six years, seven years of schooling. Everything was written and he might have had, you know, some computer um, lessons here and there. But 
transferring to school with more resources, those teachers and those students were ready to go with the computers. So he had to learn how to quickly pick up on those skills and, you know, whether or not he's completely literate, I'll leave that out. But uh, my daughter, on the other hand, you know, she started in this school at a younger age. And so she picked up very quickly and was able to kind of just go with it. And, you know, now the difference between her and her brother at this point and knowing how to work through the computer and transfer skills from, you know, different softwares and you know, of course, everything has advanced now, but she is a lot more fluent and able to transfer skills faster than her brother is. So then I start to think, what about those students who did come from schools with fewer resources and didn't have, you know, complete focus just yet until, you know, midway through their schooling and are now in higher ed versus the students who are coming in who have had all of those resources and educators who made sure that they're learning these skills in class moving in you know like i i think about the students right now who would have been in that middle school range or lower before the you know these computer-based testing started and this is just within arizona i don't know about the other states and when they started with computer-based testing but are we expecting them to come in with these skills already just because we know that students are getting those skills right now in class or in K-12, how are we how are we looking at where they were at with their own yeah. learning? There's a lot of assumptions being made mm-hmm. about what you should know by the time you start higher ed. Mm-hmm. So are you asking essentially, is there a benchmark or should there be a benchmark? And if there is, if we know and define whatever a foundational set of skills and, and abilities might be, how do we measure them? Yes. And then how do we address those who need some additional support to get to whatever our, you know, basic level of competency is? Mm-hmm. And what is the what is the cost to the student almost, if you will, if you think about it like that? Do we require them to take an extra course and pay for three more credits of higher education? Mm-hmm. Or do we find a way to build that into other ancillary support systems in the university? That's a big yeah, issue. Great point. And I think it is. And I have yet to find anywhere that does have these benchmark, you know, skills. And I think it's important because so many courses expect their students to come in, even if the instructor doesn't completely have a grip on everything. They're still expecting the student to have, you know, more knowledge sometimes. And then they do. And then they'll, you know, catch up with with those skills. And in practice, then what happens if they if they struggle, then they might just be recommended, oh, well, you should find some tutoring resources or, yes, you know, mm-hmm. it's like it's on the student at that point to figure out how to address any perceived gap. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, that's an interesting point. Now, there's two arguments to be made as far as I'm concerned. When you start higher ed as an 18 year old, for example, which is a common case, you are starting that separation into your own uh, it's sort of independence. You, you become, you're becoming an adult. So you do, to an extent, have to start learning how to get from point A to point B on your own. And that means identifying what you don't know and what you do know and how you can leverage that, right? But at the same time, what happens if you didn't have access your whole life? 
You know, what mm-hmm. happens if you're part of, you're marginalized either through uh, location because not every, you know, rural areas, for example, have a more difficult time getting a good internet connection mm-hmm. or maybe is poverty. Maybe you simply didn't have the money for it. So are we going to punish these people even more by, <laughs> by telling them, sorry, uh, you don't have the computer skills that are uh, necessary. And if you want them, you're going to have to pay for another course. You know, that doesn't seem right either. So... Yeah, there's a fine balance to be made there. Surely we can offer these resources somehow, especially to the incoming freshmen. Well, I do see some low-hanging fruit here potentially. As um, instructional designers who you know work with courses with faculty, and we think about what are standardized resources in you know online course shells, or even what information is placed in a syllabus. Maybe some of the low-hanging fruit is making those very at least minimal levels of skill and expectations, very well defined. We expect you to be able to copy and paste text on a browser. We expect you to be able to submit a word process document through an online course system and then pair those basic norms and expectations with other existing university resources. So even if it's not a benchmark, some kind of assessment, and then, you know, filling the gap kind of process, at least if we're clear at the beginning, and it's not just sort of murky and it comes, you know, to a, a due date on a project and it's yeah. 1145 at night and they can't figure out how to submit an assignment. That's the mm-hmm. wrong time, right? That's it's too late at that point to be able to adequately address those needs. So that's one, I mean, potentially yeah. small. And how do you get them to read the syllabus? Well, there's that question. That's absolutely right. <laughs> I'm being a little cheeky there. there but, no, yeah. but I, it's a fair question. And I think back to the episode that we spoke to specifically on developing syllabi um, comes down to also how do you orient student to the culture of a course, not just mm-hmm. the academic work, but the culture and the norms that will help them to be successful, not just the learning value, but what do they need to get to that point A, from point A to point B? All right. Well, yes, there are a lot of questions up in the air around this because it is, I think, sometimes um, it's forgotten about. And we're moving so quickly with innovation and integrating new technologies everywhere we go that we start we forget to think not everybody has been surrounded by technology or have even, you know, dived into making sure that they know the technology, especially coming into higher ed. And we make the assumption that every person in higher ed is a go-getter and just going to figure it out, you know, as they come. Not everyone is like that. And I'll add one more. Not everybody wants to 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 learn. learn. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, That and you know what? That's so true. As somebody who's loved technology forever, I remember when I had my son, I bought him this toy that I could put on top of my keyboard so he could play with shapes and colors and numbers and hmm. he would push down, you know, certain um, keys. And it was just like this enlarged, you know, piece that went on top of the keyboard and whatever it pushed on the keyboard made the graphics happen on the screen. He had no interest in it whatsoever. <laughs> that was so sad because I was like, my kid's going to love technology and he's going to be ready to go with it. And no, he didn't care about that toy at all. <laughs> So it's very true. Not everyone is, you know, is wanting to know everything about technology or go with it. And yeah, yeah. I think it can be a bit of an imposition to mm-hmm. people who just naturally are not oriented towards technology. Mm-hmm. 
it's nothing about how smart you are mm -hmm. or capable. Surely these people, if they really, if they were forced to, will learn. And oftentimes they are because yeah. otherwise you can't pass your courses. But uh, yeah, there, you know, there's that aspect to consider as well. Mm -hmm. Before we end this podcast, we would like to share some fan mail with you all. Fan mail! Yay! Yeah, we're really excited to get an email from Whitney Lowe, and she kindly um, gave us permission to share this question uh, slash weighty thought on her mind with our other listeners. And so Whitney was interested in exploring, um, what do you do when you're working in a smaller school that really doesn't have any or very limited instructional design or instructional technology support. Um, and she went on to tell tell us a little bit about the fact that the, the majority of the programs she interfaces with are outside kind of a traditional university environment. So the, the idea is, you know, how do you navigate the situation, even um, self-directed professional development as an instructor, for example, if you're flying solo and you don't have a lot of these other types of, you know, support groups or individuals that, that we talk a lot about, in instruction by design. So that's the question. I think it's a big question. What do you guys think? It is a big question. And immediately my first thought is, of course, open educational resources. Um, there are plenty of resources out there. Um, one big one is from California State University System. Merlot. Merlot. Mm -hmm. um, you can look into other resources from like the Online Learning Consortium. Of course, Google is the best friend when <laughs> looking for resources, especially free resources. Um, there's plenty of those out there as well. I also went down this rabbit hole. It's sort of the elephant in the room. It's motivation. It's finding time. It's making sure that if you don't have resources, how do you do everything with nothing? And to that, I had a couple of thoughts that may or may not work depending on your situation in a smaller school. But the first thing is, I think this question from Whitney demonstrates somebody who's really curious and reflective about their own teaching experience. I would argue that there's an opportunity here to look within your institution to see if there are a few other faculty, maybe even just one, that's also kind of in a similar place. They have questions or, or challenges that they're trying to resolve and see if you can come up with an informal kind of localized network. And maybe that means then that you as a curious and reflective champion of sorts, can you go to your institution, whatever they are, presumably they're interested in outcomes, metrics, dollars, whatever the case may be, and provide a case for investing in development and resources for being a champion. Maybe that means 2.5% of your full-time workload goes towards being a champion and curating existing free resources, being a ringleader for others who are trying to improve something. So that goes to motivation and incentives. Can you find an entry point at which to negotiate for yourself or others, possibly? Another thing that for me, low-hanging fruit, is I would look into the possibility for some contract work. And by that, I mean, even if your institution does not have a dedicated instructional design department or person, can you argue for $500 worth of resources a year to go out and hire a contract instructional designer to build you templates or to help you evaluate a curriculum map and make recommendations on where there are obvious places for improvement or changes. I think that's one thing where, again, you're going to have to have some inputs to get an output. But if you can demonstrate that there's value 
then you may be able to pull that off. So it starts with how much you're willing to take on as a leader within your own role to advance those initiatives. On that note, I just would like to say another sincere thank you to Whitney Lowe for sending this weighty question for us to ponder. And to our other listeners, if you have other fantastic ideas about how to answer the doing everything with nothing question, please feel free to weigh in by email or Twitter. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. We love hearing from our listeners. Let's continue this conversation on Twitter. Feel free to tweet us with your questions or, of course, your thoughts on digital literacy. I'd like to thank the ever so wonderful podcast team, Jeanette, and our participant and producer, Aaron. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD, as an in instruction by design, underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instructionbydesign at asu.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Not everybody has been surrounded by technology or have even, you know, dived, dove, dived in into. Oh, <laughs> <Dove> in. <laughs> and not everyone has dived into making sure that.